Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to listen to more of our past shows, please find us on iTunes at The Wonderful World of Wine. Once again, Kim and I welcome you to listen to us about all the topics and trends in the wine industry. How are you today, Kim? I'm well. How are you, Mark? Great. Hi, everybody. Everything is great. We're all loving talking wine today. We do. And first, I want to start out, Kim. We get a lot of interesting questions from people buying wine or people in educational classes. So I wanted to hit you up with a question that I got. And a lot of times when I approach people who are looking for wine, I want to be prepared. Usually they want to know where something is, a recommendation or a food and wine recommendation. So I went up to a woman and I asked her if she needed help with wine and she said, yes, can you help me with a wine that will not give me diarrhea? Oh my. Yes. And exactly what I thought. <laughs> right? So no, strange, strange question. First for me, but I wanted to ask you how you would have approached it and answering that from hmm. a wine consumer's question. I probably would have started with a bit of a stunned look on my face. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't think I've ever heard that one before. And that's exactly, I was like, well, no one's ever asked that yeah. to me. You know, usually when people say that they are having some sort of a negative response digestion wise to wine, it usually is kind of the other end. You know, you have reflux or heartburn or red face, that kind of a thing, but not necessarily getting all the way through your digestive system. I don't know. I, I think I would probably ask her what wines have caused that reaction in the past. And if she said it's just red wines or less expensive wines, I don't know. I think my first my first guess would be to try to figure out what is causing it. I mean, I'm, I'm not a doctor, uh, so I don't know that I would necessarily be able to come up with the right response for her. But yeah, try to get to the, the bottom of what it is about specific wines that, that's causing her symptoms and, and maybe try to work around that. I, th- I like your approach. What did you, you know, say? It's it's like, <laughs> well, you're always kind of thinking, where can I direct her? What what type of wine she's looking for? What am I thinking, getting ready to answer, mm-hmm. right? And like you said, it's kind of a shock thing. But then I was thinking, this just leads to how we approach most questions. Like you said, what, do you, what have you been drinking? Let's mm-hmm. determine, was it white wine that's hurting you or red wine that's hurting you? And she was a lot of information. So I, I was handling it just like any other wine question we got. It was just a very out there wine question. I gave her a lot of credit for being able to ask it. Yeah. So, I mean, we always say ask everything, right. but you don't expect this. Right. We always right, say there are, no, there are no dumb wine questions. You know, we want to help people with even the really basic stuff, because if you don't have a good grounding in sort of the, the basics about wine, you can't really build upon that. So, yeah, no, don't yeah. don't hesitate to ask us questions. Uh, but that is a new one for me. And I had never heard that that's one That's exactly kind of what I wanted to get out to the listeners today is don't be afraid yeah. to ask ask any question. Usually we've heard them all. This was a new one. <laughs> and, and now it, we have. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and it was a great question. She had concerns and hopefully we picked something. I didn't hear anything back. So mm-hmm. I'm assuming everything was okay. Well, so. kudos for her for, you know, making making that effort. And that mustn't have been easy for her to talk to you about. But she obviously wanted to find something that would be a pleasure for her to drink without causing uh, bad side effects. So I hope that she was sent home with a bottle that she's going to enjoy drinking. 
great little opinion piece that comes from a wine professional named Tim Geyser, who I've actually met. He's a sort of science, psychology, very interesting take on wine. And it was about tech sheets and what is a useful tech sheet? What is a bad tech sheet? What should be in a tech sheet? So he had this this piece labeled um, a tech sheet manifesto. And just for a little background information, Mark, why don't you tell our listeners what we mean by a tech sheet? Yeah, Kim, I love tech sheets. I know, me too. um, First, I have to ask you, I never heard this story. You met this gentleman. Yeah, he taught uh, a seminar last year in Boston and a little bit of a tasting. So he was part of a panel. I mean, I was able to talk to him afterwards. And the first thing he asked me was, have you read my books? Yeah. (laughs) And I'm like, I have one at home. Yes. He writes very interesting articles. He really does. He's a big thinker. Graphics. Yeah. Yeah. So, wow, that's cool. Uh, All right. So tech sheets, you know me and the geekiness with wine labels, and this relates to a tech sheet. So every, usually every, I don't want to say good winery, but every winemaker will produce a technical sheet. I'd of, say every good winery. Yeah, <laughs> I well, would I go there. Wanna, I don't want to, you know, we'll get into that a little more. But So they make a wine and then they have details of that wine they put on a sheet and it's the what they call the technical data. And it could be everything from what the weather was when it was picked, what's in it, what types of grapes, what types of oak, very detailed down to the chemical analysis of the wine. So wine geeks like ourselves, Kim, if we want to teach someone about a wine, we go to these quite often to give the real details behind them. Right. And they're not only useful for folks like you and myself, Mark, who are looking at the details and, you know, figuring out from what the technical data is telling us. We can read that and understand intuitively what the style of the wine is, maybe how fruity, maybe how acidic, and kind of almost get an idea of what that wine is going to taste like even before we put it in our mouth. But folks who are wine novices and don't have all that information in their brain already can still really get some important information out of a tech sheet. And really one of the more important things I think is that you can immediately tell, is this a mass produced wine or is this something with a little more handmade care given into it? And usually the more, either more, the more specific location the wine comes from, the smaller the production the more, like I said, the more care that goes into the making of the wine, usually the more information you'll find on a tech sheet. Yeah, I love that you started with that point first, because one of the things we always say is you want to find out about a wine, you go to Google, you put in the vintage of the wine, the name of the wine and the grape. So say 2017, uh, Joe's Winery, Cabernet, and then just say tech sheet. And if it pops up and it has a PDF file, that's something that's fully detailed, Mm -hmm then you know that is a true tech sheet, someone who's proud to tell you about their wine. And on the other side, if it's a big corporation or a mass-produced wine, generally you'll just see a very brief, this is a Cabernet, it's California, it goes good with steak. Right. Or you might just see a tasting note. And there's a difference between these technical sheets and just tasting notes. This is supposed to give lots of data, really specific stuff. And like you just said, it will often come in the form of a PDF, something that you can download, save onto your computer if you're really geeky like we are, but in one cohesive place and not just a bunch of tasting notes all over the internet. And this is great information. It doesn't only happen with wines in the United States. You can find things from France and Spain or whatever. The problem is with other countries, a lot of times you might have to translate Mm. the text sheet pages. And in translation, sometimes the details get lost. Okay, the translations can be so funny sometimes. (laughs) There are some really humorous things, especially with those tasting notes. 
the technical stuff comes across a little bit easier in translation. You know, science is sort of the universal language, but descriptive terms can be so funny when like there's Google Translate involved. So what are some of the, you think, more important pieces of information that should be available to consumers on a tech sheet, Mark? Well, I think that's actually what Tim was saying in this article. Yeah, he spells out a whole yeah, he, list of things. A lot of them I agreed on. He was saying uh, there should be a template that he feels that stuff should be on there. For me, it's all about tell me what is in this. What grape? It's Cabernet, if you're mixing something else, because it makes a difference how much percentage of Cabernet. And I think lately the go-to thing for me as well is how much of this are you making? Are you proud that you're only making 6,000 cases? And you'll say that. So I use that a lot. So what about you, Kim? What do you pick out of a tech sheet? Um, I tend to look a lot of the time at the winemaking process. So how the wine is made and how it's aged. Because I feel, in addition to grape variety, that that can tell you a lot about the style of the wine. Viticulture is also important. You know, how ripe was that fruit when it was picked? Um, so he does say that, yes, that is an important thing that should be mentioned in the wine world when we're talking about ripeness of grapes uh, we talk about them in terms of bricks b-r-i-x and that's the amount of sugar that's left over in the grape uh, when it's being when it's picked so that is important too but like i want to know how was it aged what kind of barrels was it aged in did it undergo malolactic fermentation if it's a white wine because that speaks to how is the acid going to be is it going to be crisp versus creamy is it going to have oak barrel flavors associated with it. Those kind of things I think are really important for me to know so that I can then pass that information on to the students in my class about what the style of this wine is. And then I also pay attention to what's the residual sugar and then try to figure out kind of how high or low in acid is the wine. Yeah, I agree with all that. And I think we always tell uh, people these are great value, a great resource to find out you know what you're putting your money towards. And you were saying about the chemical analysis of the oak is one thing, Kim, you had mentioned as well. When you taste oak in a wine, I want to know, is this really in a barrel? So if you go to the Mm -hmm. text sheet and it says it's 16 months in French oak, and of that French oak, 50% of that oak was new oak, I know I'm tasting real oak. But if you taste oak in a wine, you go to the text sheet and it doesn't even say anything about oak, they're not telling you for a reason. So that's what I love the text sheets about. Yeah. And you know, like a lot of things, the more information that's there, the more you can kind of believe it. So even just at a glance, you can usually tell. Are they giving you tons of data? Like this was the pick date and this was the location and all of this extra stuff. Like you said, you know, specific barrels and how long they aged it in. That And it's not 100% of the time that that is going to lead to a better quality wine, but it's usually a pretty good rule of thumb. Yeah, a lot of times you have to be careful. I've talked to winemakers in the past where their label and their wine might say one thing and the tech sheet might say another thing. Mm -hmm. And they're not even aware of it sometimes because they might have changed something after they submitted the text sheet. Have you ever run into this, Kim? Yeah, all the time. You see a difference, right? So you have to be careful and do some research to make sure things kind of match up, ask questions. So if you're tasting something in a wine, you can go to this text sheet to see if it's truly in there or not. Right. And then we get to sort of the what shouldn't be on a text sheet. And Tim is very specific about there should be no fluffy language. (laughs) So tasting notes, 
that are overly poetic or are just talking a lot about food and wine pairings. Now, I think food and wine pairings are are a wonderful thing uh, to have information about, but I I absolutely can see how that could sort of add to the the fluffy sort of filler if you don't have anything else to say about the wine. You're going to kind of fill in with, hey, it goes great with, I don't know, seared sea scallops or (laughs) something like that. So no fluff, kind of keeping it more fact-based, I guess you could say. Well, and that's a way probably a lot of the winemakers, the TTB says things on the label must be truthful. So they might say, okay, well, I can't put it on the label. But if the person goes to my text sheet, I'm going to kind of build that up a little bit more. So, Or if you don't have a text sheet, you're putting it on your website associated with the wine anyway. And we see this a lot too, especially for more commercially produced wines. You go to their homepage, you know, go to their website and click on whatever the you know little tab is for this particular wine. There might be just two sentences about it, and that's all. That they don't actually have a dedicated text sheet for that wine. But you'll see a quick little tasting note and a food pairing. But they're not actually telling you anything about where the wine is from, who grew the grapes, all that technical stuff that we like to see. And that's another one of those indicators that that this might be a more big brand kind of a wine. So Kim, would you say when you research a wine, finding it text sheet that this can be a great story builder for the wine? Absolutely. Because right? it does tell you a lot of stuff about it. It tells you it. the background. It tells you every little detail. So I use it quite often for that reason is I'm using a wine in a tasting. The text sheet tells me things I can build a story up to present it to people. And sometimes winemakers will get kind of creative in the way that they present their information. So that gets their personality across as well, which sometimes I find helpful and uh, and sometimes charming. <laughs> you know, It's kind of nice to hear the voice and the sense of humor of the winemaker or the winery owner come through in the documents that they put forward about their wines. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we are hosts Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. And if you'd like to follow the show, you can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Next, we'd like to talk about an article that was in vitisphere.com about three upcoming trends in the wine market, and they were saying trends over the next five years, Kim. So what what were your thoughts on this? One of the first things that I noticed was this overall move, it seems, towards lighter wines, slightly lower alcohol wines, which I think is probably spot on. You know, we've actually been seeing um, some indications of these over the last, I would say, year or maybe even two years that a, a lot more, I think, influence is now being had by winemakers that are making lighter alcohol wines, more backing away from the trend that we had about about a decade ago about big, powerful, high alcohol fruit extracted uh, reds and kind of moving in the opposite direction. So I think that that was really what struck me immediately about this article and that kind of tied all of these trends together. Yeah, a lot of the low alcohol marketing is based on low calorie Mm -hmm. wine. So in turn, to be low calorie, it's lower in alcohol. And I do see that trending. And at first, it was maybe one or two varietals in this category. Now it's expanding to, to open 
open the market up. So I don't see it going down. I see more brands out there. And to me, people just have to understand you can drink normal alcohol level wines and just drink a little less of mm-hmm. it as well. So Or sometimes technically what, what winemakers are talking about or wine writers are talking about when they're talking about quote unquote lower alcohol wines is that you're looking more at 11 and 12% wines as opposed to 15, 16% wines. So it's not necessarily those reduced calorie, I guess you could call them diet wines that have undergone some sort of manipulation in a lab to bring them down to like six, seven, eight percent alcohol and still not have any sugar. These are relatively naturally produced wines that just happen to not be super high octane. So they'll often come from grape varieties that just don't get those higher alcohol levels or that they come from cooler climate. And one of the specific areas that was mentioned in this article was the Loire Valley, which is in central France, one of my favorite places for white wine in particular. And those wines tend to be light and bright, whether they're sweet or whether they're dry, and they don't generally get to super high alcohol levels. So, you know, you're looking at like I said, 11 and 12% of, of alcohol by volume and mostly Chenin Blanc and Sauvignon Blanc. And I love them. So I'm happy to see this on this list. Yeah, very misunderstood region for, for wine drinkers. I think they're afraid. And they, they had mentioned New Zealand as well for these white wine category. And I think the person that's drinking New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc should really explore Sauvignon Blanc from the Loire region. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they would be shocked yeah. at the quality for the price points that they're paying. Regionally, it's a little complicated to understand because there are lots of tiny little areas all following along the Loire River. And each of these individual areas has its own name that they generally will put on the label of their bottle. So that can make the labeling system a little complicated if you don't know where these places are or what they're referring to. But we do see this move towards, if it's Sauvignon Blanc, they'll put Sauvignon Blanc on the label. If it's a Vouvray, they'll put Chenin Blanc on the label. So that does make it a little bit easier for especially American consumers to kind of have an idea of what they're getting in that bottle. I like that they see some movement in, in this white wine because in the past 70% or so varietal was white was being sold. Now it's more 70% red. So maybe they're seeing a little tickets coming back towards white. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that might have to do with some other varietals that are out there for white. People are getting away from Chardonnay. They might be going to Albarino or uh, Vermentino. So I think that might be fueling the trend a yeah. little bit. Interesting they brought up Vermentino because one of the other categories that was mentioned was that Italy and Italian whites and specifically will hopefully be trending in the next few years. And I think that's also awesome because American consumers, generally when you think of white wine from Italy, we think of two things. We think of Pinot Grigio and we think of Prosecco. But there's all this other stuff that's out there that's awesome and it's excellent with food. Um, it's light, it's crisp, it's bright, delicious. And I always try to, just like I used to throw in a rosé for all of my tastings just to get people to get over that hump of not everything that's pink is sweet. Not everything that comes from Italy that's white is Pinot Grigio. Here are these other dozen grape varieties that are, are really cool. And if you like Pinot Grigio, you definitely should check them out. Yeah, it was interesting. They said Italian wines will start improving trend-wise, but they said 63% or 64% of the consumers felt France was the best wine compared to 13% that or were saying Italian wine. So that's going way out to seeing this Mm -hmm. trend with those numbers. But they're seeing big growth right now in Canada, China, Hong Kong. And I personally, Kim, I think we are both seeing in the United States a tremendous amount of people looking for education in Italian 
Taiwan. So that it will feed this trend a great deal. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I think is fueling the Italian wine movement is how Prosecco is just so hot and everybody's go-to. I, I noticed it the past New Year's. Everybody who was the champagne sparkling wine is now the Prosecco sparkling wine. There's more and more uh, Prosecco cocktails out there. Mm-hmm. So that is driving this movement as, as well. And it's nice that there are those Proseccos that are in maybe a slightly higher price category. You know, they're not seven, eight, nine dollars a bottle. They're like $14, $15 a bottle. And I feel like the quality is such an improvement when you spend $5, say, more per bottle. And it's those wines that I feel can really get people excited about this category. It's funny you mentioned the, the quality, Kim, because I just saw another related article in Italian wine saying that a lot of the restaurant wine lists now are getting away from high-end French wines and going to more Italian. Oh, wow. So it, that has a lot to do with the quality that's coming out of Italy. Like Prosecco and Franciacorta and sort of those other... Yeah, so maybe yeah, backing nice. down on the champagnes and going more other Italian hmm. sparklings. So, I mean, that's a great example. But. Things are always changing. And one final category that was brought up, and I really feel like this pulls for, on the Italy topic as well, is this idea that regional designations will become much more important. And, you know, usually we see wines named after the place that's really associated with France. Did you see that with Italy a lot? And Italy isn't really known for brands. They're more known for like the place is the thing that is important. You know, people understand and know Chianti, but they don't necessarily know particular producers. You know, they, they know the style, they know the place. And this article is saying that one of these trending topics is going to be this greater understanding and purchase of wines based on on where they're from and their regional designation. And I, I sort of see this a little bit definitely with Italy. We're starting to see this more with Spain and we definitely see it with Portugal. What the Portuguese winemakers are trying to do is really brand themselves by the region that they're from and not necessarily the grape varieties that they're made of. So as this concept expands, I think we'll see a little bit more of that. Yeah, I like how people will be looking at where it's from and is more than if it's organic or not organic or what's the grape that's in this. They want to know where that is from. Then they'll they'll research and find out what grape it's from or if it's organic. So it was a high number of people that said this trend is going to happen. And this goes back to, I mean, the United States protects regions or placed by AVAs. So they're saying, I believe in this, is that globally people are going to accept this concept to promote where it's from, to get that through to people to promote quality in the wines. And we do see this booming interest in wine, but from kind of an educational standpoint, you know, people want to know more about their wines and not just have a glass and just drink it and not really know or care what's in it. So I think as people get more interested in learning a little bit more about wine, this is going to be a natural progression. You know, you don't just care about what the grape variety is, you care about where it comes from and that that makes a difference for you and your enjoyment of it as you find certain places that you like the flavor of as opposed to just grape varieties that you like the flavor of. So these are definitely some trends to watch. It's funny, didn't we see just recently a a trend opposite of this trend saying people didn't care anything about what was in the wine it was trending something to I think that nature you know I think it's always a little bit of both and change does happen slowly and what we were saying before about trends in do people prefer red wines do people prefer white wines that always seems to go up and down and up and down and they flip-flop but they don't flip-flop from year to year you know they flip-flop from decade to decade or generation to generation so it's not like a quick change there's usually not much that happens in the wine industry that is like a real 
real fast change in what's popular and what's not. It's kind of slow and gradual. I mean, we people sort of see right now that, you know, rosé is really hot and it's like, oh, rosé is trending. Well, rosé has been building to this for almost 20 years. It's not like it just happened. So I kind of like this idea of giving it a longer term look. It's not just what's going to be trendy this year. It's what should we look for over the next half of a decade. So we'll see. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We're your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find more information about me at my website, venitaswineworks.com, and more information about Mark at his website, franklinliquors.com. Recent article from Wine Economist magazine, Is the Prosecco Boom Sustainable? I feel like we've been talking about Prosecco a lot lately. Seems to be one of those really, really hot topics that uh, is showing up in a lot of of people's uh, blogs and magazines. What do you think? Mark? Yeah, I mean, is the Prosecco was, boom sustainable? It was just in our prior topic as well that it's trending over the next five years, Italian wine. So, I mean, a big part of it is due to Prosecco. We talked recently about rose Prosecco's coming out. Its sales are up in the US, UK, Germany. So, it's yeah, a everywhere. worldwide trend. And I guess the way they're looking at it here is usually, like you were saying earlier, Kim, these trends start and then they peak and then they drop and then they might come back. So, I guess that's what they're saying. Will this be an even sale? or is this something that's going to peak, die, and then maybe come back? Mm -hmm. I really like that they bring up the idea of, well, how does the consumer view this wine? Like regular, everyday person off the street who maybe comes in and buys a bottle of Prosecco, what do they understand and how do they view this product? Do they view Prosecco as a brand? Do they think it's a grape? Do they associate it with a style, a region? And Prosecco is all these things, but it, it might get a little hazy in the mind of the consumer. So me personally, I think people think of it as a style or the name of the wine and not necessarily a region and not necessarily a grape variety, but they definitely associate it with those lighter bubbles that um, that you get in the bottle. Yeah, I agree with that. And you know what's confirming this is mm-hmm. a lot of the bigger brands, Cupcake, Josh, Menage a Trois, they've all come out with Italian Prosecco. And they're actually growing it they're, in Italy? Well, they're sourcing, they're sourcing the, fruit. the juice from Italy, putting their brand. So they want to jump on this Prosecco bandwagon with their name brand. So they're putting their brand because of the fact, I think, like you said, Kim, consumers may not know the technical details or the grapes behind it, but they know Prosecco. And now they also know Josh. So I want Josh Prosecco. I think that's so crazy that you have California wine brands that are sourcing fruit from a different country and then putting the Appalachian name of that juice on their wine. And yet it's an American American brand. It's like, ah, that's... that's Well, Gallo has one of the bigger brands out there, LaMarca, is, is Gallo, so yeah. they jumped on it very early. But they don't have the Gallo name on the bottle of LaMarca Prosecco. You yeah. know, they had to build the brand of LaMarca as its own thing, as opposed to Cupcake. Every Not everybody, but people recognize that brand. People recognize the Menage a Trois brand, and it's just another part of their portfolio. So right. that's interesting. And I 
think what's going to happen personally is this this level where these big brands are in is the DOC level, the lower level of Italian wine production. But I think it's going to hurt the nice high quality, the DOCG level, where there's really small vineyards, really small production stuff being made at under $20 a bottle that is great. So will this lower level hurt the sustainability of Prosecco at the higher level? Yeah, it seems like so, from a marketing branding perspective, those and it's, you know, they're not even just like higher end Prosecco, but more carefully made production that has a lot of hillside vines instead of valley floor vines. You know, the, the better Proseccos that taste of place and that are a, a little bit more well-crafted than these big commercial brand Proseccos, they need to do something to differentiate themselves. Otherwise, they're kind of going to get lost and people aren't going to understand what they are. They're not going to buy them. And I think Italian sparkling wine in general has kind of always suffered from this, at least from an American perspective. They've always been always compared to champagne. And it's like poor Franciacorta is always compared to champagne. So people are like, well, why should I spend $35 on a bottle of Franciacorta when I can just go get a bottle of champagne? And I think these upper level Proseccos need to do something to differentiate themselves from the little cheapies. So you're saying the more popular Prosecco is hurting the higher level sparkling wines as well, Kim? Is that what you're saying? Or it's hurting No, I think it, champagne? I think Italian sparkling wine in general is not necessarily very well understood in the American marketplace. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think a lot of the Prosecco is taken away from those people now as well. Yeah. So they were always fighting, like you said, they were always fighting champagne. Now they have to fight within their own country, this massive production of Prosecco. Right. So, right. But I think our listeners also need to know to experiment with other styles of Prosecco because the, the general Prosecco, the $10 version, is just really fermented quick. It's fresh. But like we were saying, the higher level, they're vintage dated, they're smaller crops. They're on the leaves for a little longer like champagne. So it's a different quality of fruit, of tasting Prosecco. Mm -hmm. They don't have a kind of a rough finish or aftertaste. They're clean. There's a lot of nice fruit there. They sometimes have those kind of creamy notes that people like in their bubblies. So definitely, you know, worth trying some Proseccos that are not just the $10 ones. So that would probably sustain the growth. If people love this entry-level Prosecco, the next progression for them is to go with the higher grade Prosecco and then after that go to the sparkling wines from Italy. Other sparkling wines, correct? Right. So that that would promote growth. But then I'm wondering how much as the market is super saturated at the $10 to $12 range, how much of that can the market sustain? You know, how much more consumption of $10 Prosecco are we going to see until it all sort of falls apart and people move to something else? So that's, I, I think that is the other side of this. It's like the more expensive, better stuff has to be differentiating itself from the less expensive stuff but then how long how long can this be sustained for this trend of prosecco growth and hopefully those big brands that jump on this bandwagon don't mm-hmm. don't hurt it you know we've seen it before i think they, they will yeah Honestly. I, I i'm tend to think that too because there's too much of it now and yeah, it's taking people away from the true production right. prosecco into these people are just marketing it's they, like california chardonnay right right you right, know there exactly. there are oceans of california chardonnay of all very similar styles that honestly will are taking away from the really the good ones and even ones in the same price range that maybe have a little bit more attention to detail are sort of losing out to all of this mass market California Chardonnay.
Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Mark Lenzi and Kim Simone. To find past episodes of our show, please go to iTunes and search The Wonderful World of Wine, and we'll visit with you again next week. Cheers. Bye, bye.